If you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 2. If you do not, that's also okay. You should have a sermon insert that has a bunch of fish on the front. James, wisdom for dissidents. I have the privilege of preaching for us this morning from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As is our custom here, sometimes we, uh, we read the text all up front. Sometimes we just read it as we go, but I'm going to go with the former today. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first 13 verses of James 2, and then we will jump in. <clears throat> My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our topic this morning is sinful partiality. This sinful partiality, you could say, is important to Scripture. You could also say that it is central in the Harry Potter story. Harry Potter is one of my favorite stories. Um, I I love the seven-book collection. I was arriving first at Meyer for some reason. Sometimes Barnes & Noble, Borders, rest in peace, Um, on opening day of all of those books. My mom would take us, she read me the first three while we're like bedtime. Um, It just, it's nostalgia as much as it is good literature. I like the story. Um, Yes, there are magic and there's fighting about whether or not it's child appropriate, but I think it is. Um, Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis has, have it as well. But it, it's, it's a great story. Um, the, the, the fighting that takes place with the bad guy, he who must not be named, Voldemort, actually revolves around our topic of partiality. Voldemort, a pure-blood magician, and his dark fiends want to uh, either eliminate humans, 
muggles, or just make them servants and slaves. Because magic resides with the special ones. Voldemort's not the only one who had that vision, though. There was a wicked wizard long before Voldemort named Grindelwald. And you, you might know him, he, uh, Johnny Depp. He, he, Johnny Depp played him in the first two movies of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And then personal things in his life happened, so he, he was replaced in the third one. It's a little weird. But um, in the middle movie of those three Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Grindelwald, the, the villain, Johnny Depp, speaks into our topic today when he speaks of muggles. That's the derogatory term for humans, the non-magique. He says, I say, and he's at a rally trying to get support for his regime, and he says, I say the muggles, they're not lesser, but other. They're not worthless, but of other value. They're not disposable, but of a different disposition. And then he goes on to say, magic blooms only in rare souls, the special ones. It is granted to those who live for higher things. Voldemort, like his predecessor long before uh, Grindelwald, were great at partiality. They were great at seeing people based upon whether or not they had magic and then making judgment calls, value calls, based upon those, we could say, outward appearances, those outward manifestations. Friends, James is going to obliterate that in our souls and in our worldviews this morning. To put a positive spin on it, James is calling the church, he's calling you, and he's calling me this morning to impartiality, to showing no partiality. The partiality in our text is finance, wealthy and shabby, lots of money, pretty and not. Elsewhere in scripture, there's a Jew and Gentile partiality. There's a Jew and Samaritan partiality. In our day and age, it's skin color partiality. It can be political aisles. It can be a number of ethnicities. For me, I'll share a little bit more of this later, it can be theological and worldview based. There are a number of ways that we can be partial, and friends, it ought not be. And our text, as well as the other texts, especially in the New Testament, that speak to partiality, root this problem in the gospel itself. We are to resist partiality and, and, and to fight to see others through the lens of God's grace because this is gospel-related. The Jesus who came to save sinners calls his people to not see each other based upon any outward appearance, except in Christ or out of Christ. My main argument this morning is that the gospel calls us to denounce sinful partiality and to see others through the lens of God's grace because partiality is antithetical to the gospel. Partiality is antithetical to God's grace. I wish I would have come up with that statement myself. I didn't. I borrowed it from Sinclair Ferguson. I'm attributing it to him now. I also put it on the front of your worship booklet, Presbyterian Scottish man who's taught me a lot. 
Uh, I'll quote him later where that quote comes from. Anti- the, the, the partiality is antithetical to grace. So let's explore this topic of ours this morning, partiality and the call in our lives to resist it and see each other the way God sees us by looking, I have two points for us. One point for verses one through seven, the first paragraph, and we're gonna spend the vast majority of our time there. And then a second point, which solves our problem in verses eight through 13 to conclude. But the first point I have for us is the problem, verses one through seven, and that is partiality. Specifically, that partiality is antithetical to gospel grace. Look again with me at verse one. My brothers, show no partiality, brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And here again, we're seeing the connection between the command, don't show partiality, with the gospel. The command to not show partiality is rooted in the nature of Jesus himself. Don't show partiality, brothers and sisters, as you're holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, literally the the Lord of glory, the, the, the glory one. Partiality has no room in the kingdom of God because Jesus doesn't operate that way. He came to save a people from every tribe, language, people and nation. So who are we to look at one another based upon tribes, languages, peoples, and nations in terms of artificial barriers? But the the context is important here. Rather than talking about what is and is not partiality, I think this will be worked out when we remember the context. Verse 2 says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, what? Comes into your assembly. This is church. We're talking about the gathered people of God, partialities being shown in the church based upon perceived outward appearances, and James is not happy because Christ is not happy. I, this is an aside as well. Remember who these people are. James is writing to Jewish Christians that have been banished from Jerusalem They've taken all of their belongings on a goat in a cart, whatever they can throw on there, and they have hit the road. They've walked all over the Holy Land and are scattered, and they find new homes, new towns, and what do they do? Assemble. Gather together. Because even persecuted Christians in the first century have no category for loving and following Jesus and not getting together. It's called church. It's called assembling. Jesus purchased a people to be together. Again, that's just as an aside, not a main point of the text, that very early in the churches, these people are persecuted and scattered, and they're going, they're like, well, where are we going to gather? Because Jesus purchased us, and we're Jesus' people, and Jesus' people is a people, not person. We get together. The church gathers. But in this gathering, sinful partiality is being shown to a wealthy person over and against a poor man. Partiality, then, is making value judgments of another person based upon outward appearance, any outward appearance. Value judgments are being made upon souls based upon the way we're perceiving them. This partiality is to show favoritism. 
And again, the context, when gathering even, to be partial to those you like that are shiny, maybe those that are like you, maybe the easy ones, based upon outward physical appearance. Now, let me, let me take it a step further. I think this is a biblical step forward. Go a little deeper here. Sinful partiality, then, is judging anyone or valuing anyone, good or bad, based upon anything but Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. Maybe that didn't connect and land with anybody. That was a super political statement. And I'm not making it to be political. I'm making it because the scriptures are there. Sinful partiality in James 2 is to judge someone or value someone positively or negatively based upon any other standard except Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That means this whole passage is calling us, commanding us, freeing us from being those who value someone or judge someone based upon anything other than in Jesus or not. That's the only partiality in the kingdom because there's only two types of people in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and rejecting him in rebellion. Now the partiality in this text is based upon appearance and illustrated for us in verses two through four and it is truly a timeless illustration. I don't even need to to flesh this out very much. It's a wealthy person and a shabby one. Look at verse two. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the, the gold-ringed man, it's literally a gold-fingered man and in bright clothing. It's just, it's fab. It's shiny. It's pretty. It's like, it would be the GQ person. It'd be the celebrity. The shiny, the bright one, the attractive couple. Wow. Haven't met you. Come on in. But he's not the only person who wanders into this assembly. Verse 2 continues, a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. The word for shabby there is literally vile, filthy. He's a poor person, and I actually think we're supposed to think it's a dirty person. Who are you going to go to? Who are you going to escort to their seat, make small talk with, and befriend? See, what's going on here, friends, is judgment calls on one's value are being made by appearance. That one looks great. Their tithe, that, that 10% of that one's probably pretty good. Or if I get in with that gold-fingered man, I might get some, some invites to exclusive dinner parties. Those are fun. But this poor person, this filthy, dirty person comes in. You sit at my foot. It's literally be my footstool. Become my footstool. Sit at my footstool. The spiritual value of these two people are being determined by what we can get out of them. What can I get from the wealthy person in bright clothing, gold-fingered? And what can I get from the poor person in shabby clothing? Not a lot from him. So I'm going to that one. Judgments are being made. Value calls are being made based upon the way they look. Before we judge them too quickly... I do the same thing, and you probably do as well. It might just not be based upon gold-fingeredness and bright clothing, but it's, it's based upon, is that going to be an easy 
relationship? Or is that going to take some work? Is that person like me or are they super different? Let's be honest. Uh, they like the things I like or are they weird? <laughs> I'll work on the first one, but I ain't got time for that one. You end up seeing and training yourself to see other people as commodities. What can I get out of you? Or, or the other way, how much work is it going to take of me to do this thing? And you're passing partiality. You're passing judgment. You're passing value on the person based upon your perception of them and seeing them as commodities. Friends, we're called to see people as image bearers with inherent dignity because they've been made in the image of a good and loving God. That's the starting point. That's the bottom. That, that's where we begin. Then we're moving up from there. Oh, this is a brother or sister in Christ, regardless of what they're wearing, regardless of the color of their skin or their ethnicity or where they came from. They're not commodities. And so they're doing that. They're showing partiality. And look at verse 4 with me. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This Greek construction here is, is meant to get the super clear, positive, uh, affirmative answer, I should say. It's a question, but it's, it's redundant. It's like, yes is the answer. So when you act this way and show the rich person to the nice seat, and then you tell the poor person, go sit over there, peasant, be my footstool, ugh. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Answer, yes, you have. You have become a judge with an evil thought when you make value calls about someone based upon the way they look. The problem is not that they're making distinctions, or, or like wrong distinctions, I mean. Like you, you just need to make distinctions this way. There's just a better way to distinguish between people. No, the problem is that they're distinguishing at all based upon these outward physical appearances. So why, why is this sinful discrimination, why is this sinful partiality, this favoritism, so destructive to the gathered people of God? It's because it's anti-gospel. It's because when we do it, for whatever reason we might do it, we're actually being Pharisees. Jesus had some strong things for Pharisees, friends. It misses the gospel. Jesus said he came to save sinners, and Paul added to it, of whom I am the foremost. And if Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I, Taylor, am the foremost, who am I to then look down on others based upon outward appearances? Who gives a rip about the, 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 the shiny person with the gold rings or the poor person dressed in shabby clothes? Do you remember the gospel? Because if you do, you're not thinking like that. In all the ways that I do and all the times that I do think like that, guess what I'm forgetting? The gospel. I'm forgetting Jesus, friends. I don't think I at least tend to do this based upon wealth or shiny clothing. I'm more of a gray and navy blue guy myself. I don't go for shiny. Um, but I can certainly do this with worldviews and theology. 
I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor and have to talk theology. No, I'm sorry. This is a real temptation of mine to cast value judgments upon another person, to, to show partiality to people based upon their theology. You believe that? <laughs> wow. Your eschatological view has us going, oh, wow, you definitely didn't take Greek. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> it's wicked. You believe that about free will or ecclesiology or baptism? <laughs> Do you not know? Oh, silly. You sit here at my foot. And I'll cast all kinds of value judgments upon somebody positively that's got a solid theology. All the theology, all the boxes are checked. I don't know them at all. I, they could be a terrible person. They got good theology, though. That's a winner. Whether we're, we're casting this judgment based upon theology or worldviews like I tend to or skin color or wealth or jobs or what they wear, suit or no suit or sandals or hat or, or whatever's going on in our hearts, friends, James is saying it has no place in the gathering of, of the people of Christ because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came and pursued not the healthy ones, because the healthy ones are not poor in spirit and don't know they have a need for a physician. Look at the, uh, the logic that, that James brings to the table. Verses five through seven. Let's look specifically at verse six. You've dishonored the poor man. But look what he goes on to say. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Interesting. Pause there for a second. To be honest, we're not sure who the rich people are. We're not sure who the gold-fingered man and, and the shabby-dressed individual is, who they are. They could be religious leaders. They could be Jewish religious leaders, and I do like that thought because if that's true, then those, the people who were in Jerusalem and drove out these original readers, kicked them out of their homes, took their homes, persecuted them, maybe even took some of their lives, the Jewish religious leaders, you can read about it in the book of Acts, then that means that as they're on the run for their lives and carrying their children and, and possessions and, and scattering abroad, they then get set up and start gathering as a church, and then some of those same types of people come. Maybe, maybe Jewish leaders that are connected to the boys in Jerusalem roll in. And there's a temptation for this original audience to show special favoritism to them because maybe if we befriend them, they'll leave us alone. Maybe if we, we get in with the wealthy ones, we'll, we'll be all right. We're not exactly sure. It could, it could be the Jewish religious leaders. It could be Roman wealthy leaders. We're not sure. But the reasons for partiality abound in James's context. And humanly speaking, some of them were good reasons for partiality. I've already talked about the Jew-Gentile divide. There was some tension there. Actually, more tension than we can even fathom. But you think about the, the Jew and Samaritan tension. Jesus goes to the, the, uh, with, to the woman at the well in John 4, and they have a long conversation about worship. There's a good reason for the Jew and Samaritan divide. The Samaritans are a people group that were made up of, they were half Jews, half bad guys. They had become friendly, literally had gotten into bed with the persecutors of God's people. 
persecutors, the ones who are killing your loved ones and, and, and shackling you and taking you into bondage. These were compromisers. I'm not sure I'd like them either. Jesus goes out of his way to speak to the Samaritans. He goes out of his way to be impartial. And James is calling us, as he is his original audience, to get rid of partiality. And it makes sense, doesn't it, when we remember the good news. Jesus came and rescued us, and it was not based on your appearance. I'm sorry if you're just finding that out. It was not your fitness that got you in the kingdom. It was not how great of a team member you would be if Captain Jesus got you. Sorry. Our appearance, our fitness, our gold-fingeredness, our wealth, all of our gifts and coolness did not get us in the kingdom simply recognizing that the good news was for sinners and we are sinners, got us into the kingdom. I heard a pastor once say, and I think, I think it was Dane Ortland. He said, the only thing that qualifies you for the kingdom of God is knowing that you don't qualify. And the only thing that disqualifies you from the kingdom is thinking that you do. If that's true, and if, if the, the front of the worship booklet quote from Sinclair Ferguson is true, and all of that happened to you, how silly is it for us to then show partiality to others based upon appearance. Friends, it's, it's silly. Once we know Jesus in the rescue that we've received, we can never look at other people the way we once did. What 2 Corinthians 5 says, merely according to the flesh, according to appearance. But what's our solution? This is the, the second point for us. Verses 8 through 13. Mercy. Resisting sinful partiality is the way of gospel obedience because it's rightly recognizing the mercy we've been shown and then it's extending the mercy we've been shown to others. Verse eight doesn't switch topics, although it is a separate paragraph. All of this is connected and talking about the same thing. You might think this is a weird, abrupt change. If you obey the royal law, but one, what, what is that? According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But look at verse nine. But if you show partiality... See, James hasn't moved on from the topic of partiality. This is connected to verses 1 through 7. These two paragraphs go together. If you obey the royal law, you're doing well. Compare and contrast that with verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're a lawbreaker. But we should ask, what is this royal law? The royal law is exactly what's expounded there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But why is it called royal Law, what makes it, that's an interesting phrase. The word royal consistently means belonging to the king. And if that's what's being communicated here, and I think it is, this royal law is the law that is especially endorsed by King Jesus. It's not to diminish his other commands. Jesus does give us a number of commands. He gives us a way of living in the world that is for our flourishing, and it has all sorts of commands to it, but there's something special about this. This is the royal law from the king. And I think this, this argument is further supported when you think about Jesus' own words. What are the, the great two commandments? What is the, the summary of the law of God? The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In these is the law of God. This is the summary of 
God's law. So coming full circle then, partiality is so unhelpful. To use James's words, partiality is so sinful because it is not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is certainly not loving your neighbor as yourself. There's the mic drop. And there, when we, when we leave this room, these four walls into the world, why there's so much discussion on partiality and why people are talking past one another and fighting over all sorts of things is they're actually untethering the command to show no partiality from the one who gave it, Jesus Christ. We're to show no partiality because it's not loving your neighbor. That's why we don't. That's why we resist sinful partiality. The opposite of obeying God's royal law is to show partiality. Or, or I can flip it and make it positive. To be impartial, to be impartial is to fulfill God's royal law. To be impartial is to love God and love neighbor. Not, we're not going to do it perfectly, but you're pursuing love of God and love of neighbor by resisting your own temptation to partiality. Okay. Do I do it? One more thought. Verse 11. It's interesting. Uh, James then goes to quote two of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery and you shall murder. And his logic is if you break one of them, you're breaking them all. Even if you say, oh, great, I don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you're guilty of all of the law. Okay, so that's the argument. My question is not the argument. My question is why does he pick those two? I think it's another connection to the Sermon on the Mount. I told first service in seminary I took an entire semester class on the Sermon on the Mount. The amount of times we were in James would blow your mind because of the similar verbiage, the repeated phrases. Two semesters later, I took an advanced Greek exegesis class of James. I was often in the Sermon on the Mount. I, got to, I, I double dipped. The, the, the closeness and the similarities between Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and James is profound. And this is another one. Why? In, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, does this, does this ring a bell? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even lusted in your heart, you're an adulterer. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, even if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of murder. It's the same two commandments. I wonder if James was there for those. But it's not just a connection to the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think. I wonder if these commands were actually real challenges for the people that James is writing to. Namely, truly, don't kill other people. What would you do if you were persecuted, driven out of your home, you lost your job, and maybe some loved ones have been put in jail or beheaded by those people? What are you going to do when you cross those people? You're going to be tempted to retaliate, I think. I would be. I think this is a real command. I wonder if some of James' original readers had killed people. We didn't commit adultery, though. You're guilty of it all. James is reiterating how chapter 1 ends, which Roger preached last Sunday. 
that outrage and anger is not the way of the kingdom. The way the apostle Peter acted in the garden of Gethsemane is not the way of the kingdom. When Jesus is arrested, he comes out of nowhere, draws a sword, and cuts off Malchus's ear. And as Roger showed us, how do you cut someone's ear off, truly? You're trying to take more off. You just missed. The way of the kingdom doesn't work that way. Do not murder. And James means it. We don't retaliate. We don't fight. We don't take heads off. We don't commit adultery. Because we love neighbor and we love God. Outrage is the way of our culture. It's not the way of our king. So here's where I'll end in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's a repeated biblical principle. Uh, Truly, Jesus has something like this. Peter has something like this. Paul has something like this. And here's James' version. The principle is that those who have received mercy from Jesus show mercy to other people. I didn't say it was profound. That's really hard to do, though. If you've received mercy from the Lord, that is forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, who are you to not forgive somebody else? Jesus said it in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He even tells a parable later in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, as it's often called. It's this servant who's forgiven $10 million from his his debtor. And then he goes and puts a brother, one of his buddies, in a chokehold who owes him 10 bucks. There's a breakdown there, right? He's not getting it. There's strong words for that servant, actually, from Jesus. Paul's words, his version of this in Colossians 3.13 is, if one has a complaint against another, forgive him or her. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The one who doesn't forgive is failing to recognize their forgiveness. The one who's not showing mercy is failing to recognize the mercy of Jesus Christ. The one who's not extending grace is blind to the grace they have been shown in Christ. This is simple kingdom ethic and incredibly difficult to live out, isn't it? And so, I ask as we go to the table, are we as merciful as we ought to be? No. Are we perfect at extending grace to others? No. Are we guilty of showing partiality? Yeah, I am at least. Do you make value judgments based upon various appearances of people or their theologies or their political leanings or whatever? Yeah. Our problem then, and I think this is, this is what James is holding out for us, our problem and therefore the solution we need is not to be told to do better, stop it, Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't think that's our takeaway. I sure hope it's not. The takeaway, and therefore the solution for us, is mercy. See Jesus. Remember who you were, who you are, and all that he has forgiven in his death and his resurrection for you, and then show it to others. Don't let that mercy and grace terminate on you. 
but throw it at others. Resist partiality. This is what Paul succinctly puts for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He reminds the church there, and he's reminding us, you know the gospel. You know the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Connected to our passage, then why in the world do you go look at the wealthy person that comes in and look down on the poor one? You're the poor one. The good news says that for all those times that that you have shown partiality, Jesus who was rich became poor so that you, the poor one, might become rich in him. All those times that you had a, a calculating thought about relationships, what can I get out of this? All the times that you saw another person as a commodity, Jesus who was rich became poor so that you, the poor one, might become rich in him. All those times that you've withheld mercy from others. Though you've been shown tremendous mercy in Christ, Jesus who was rich became poor so that you, the poor one, might become rich in him. You don't need to be told to do better and stop showing partiality. You need to see Jesus. I need to see Jesus. I need to remember what he has done for me. And if you doubt, if you're wrestling with some of this, Wrestling with the mercy that you've been shown in Christ. Look at the table. Look at what we are about to partake in together as a family. It is the table of Jesus. The Jesus who was rich and became poor so that we, the poor ones, might become rich in him. Mercy triumphs over judgment because judgment triumphed over Jesus. The judgment that you deserved. He paid. So in the gospel, we know nothing but mercy. Let's show it to others. The great mercy that we've been shown. This is a table, friends, that we go to every week. This is a table that speaks against the sinful partiality of James chapter 2. We could say it's a table of, of all colors, all types, all socioeconomic classes, all jobs, because Jesus purchased a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. but we should recognize that it's not a totally impartial table. There is partiality to the kingdom of God. It's just not what they were doing. It's not Jew and Gentile. It's not wealth and shabby. It's not gold-fingered and poor. It's not skin color. It's are you trusting in Jesus alone for salvation or are you choosing your sin over Christ? Are you in Jesus by faith or rejecting him in rebellion? That's the partiality. That's the divide. And this table is a table of mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. For all those, though, who are in Christ by faith. All those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus. Yes, imperfectly, but are genuinely following Christ and trusting him. If that is you, come to the table. Come know the mercy that Jesus holds out in himself.